This is Deb Donig with Technically Human, a podcast about ethics and technology, where I ask what it means to be human in the age of tech. Each week, I interview industry leaders, thinkers, writers, and technologists, and I ask them about how they understand the relationship between humans and the technologies we create. We discuss how we can build a better vision for technology, one that represents the best of our human values. In this week's episode, I sit down with Dr. Nick Chatrath. Dr. Nick Chatrath is an expert in leadership and organizational transformation with the aim of helping humans flourish. He holds a doctorate from Oxford University, and he serves as managing director for a global leadership training firm. His book, The Threshold, Leading in the Age of AI, which comes out this week and is published by Diversion Books, offers a revolutionary new framework for how leaders in all kinds of organizations can adapt to the new age of technology by leaning into the qualities and skills that make us uniquely human. Hi, Nick. Hi, Deb. So, Nick, I just finished reading your book, The Threshold, Leading in the Age of AI. You built a career out of leadership training and coaching. What led you to want to work in the intersection of coaching and AI? What were you seeing or noticing that led you to want to focus your interests on coaching, on AI specifically? What is it about AI that requires some extra thought when it comes to leadership? Thank you for the question. Uh, AI is increasingly everywhere. The term was coined many decades ago, but now we're really seeing an acceleration. And I think what I saw or noticed, it was something very embodied. It was something deep in me about fear and love, actually. Um, one leader that I coached works in a large organization that used AI as part of their successful um, at scale COVID response in terms of a vaccine. And they actually, this company didn't take a profit maximizing approach. The, the person I was coaching and colleagues were largely driven by their love for their fellow humans at such a testing time for humanity. And AI helped them make strides forward. So I found that hugely motivational as I was coaching. I could see what a potentially great lever for benefit for humanity in our world. But also many leaders that I have worked with, they start by being beset by fear could be fear for their own prospects as they see jobs being threatened, could be worry about what technology may do to their business or what it may do to humanity. Um, so these feelings were very visceral for me. And actually, I mean, you asked about what, um, what led me to want to work in this. And five years ago, Deb, I went for a run and I had a torrent of ideas just came to me. And when I finished the run, I wrote these ideas down and they were about AI and leadership. And three months later, I was in the shower, not the first shower I'd taken since the run, but um, then more ideas came to me and I wrote those ideas down. And I could, then I had the bright idea, why don't I compare the two sets of ideas? I looked at them and they were the same. And I realized I mean, I'd led an AI startup and I'd spent decades working on leadership development. And I saw, wow, I think I have something to bring to the world. And it took me five years to hone the ideas and slowly bring them to the world in the form of the book that uh, you, uh, thank you, have uh, read. Um, but this slowing down really seems like it's timely in terms of what's happening now in our world with AI. Um, so, yeah, for me, it was a very personal journey. And I understand the fear that there is out there. Um, I, I'm a parent myself. And Many parents have spoken to me about significant changes they've seen in their children's mental function and agreeableness as they're entering their teenage years and get addicted to AI-fueled video games. So I think some people think that a kind of AI hell is with us already. I want to take a second here to define some terms before we get into some of the topics that you bring up about slowing down, about the way that AI interacts with our uh, human values. One human value that you already introduced that 
I maybe want to dig into a little bit more is the human value of love. It's a term that we throw around a lot in the humanities as a kind of value-ridden term. There's a long history of philosophers who are very interested in the concept of love. Uh, you don't hear AI very much in the kind of humanistic conversations that encompass love. Conversely, I haven't heard love thrown around very much in conversations about AI. How are you defining those terms? And what do you mean when you say that your leaders, the people that you're talking to, wanted to fold in the context or the concept of love uh, into whatever they were building and whatever they were automating with AI? The term AI, I would define, I like John McCarthy's definition, um, which is the science and engineering of making intelligent machines. And I think you're right. The, the concept, the word love can seem very far away from that conversation. Um, Deb, you've asked me a huge question there. <laughs> Define love. And philosophers and many others over the years have really uh, looked at that. And I think I would look to uh, selflessness. I would look to humility and servant heartedness when I look at love. And the reason I think it is relevant in the increasingly AI fueled world that we have is that as you look at leadership over the centuries, we've gone from a very sort of animal form of leadership in the past through the industrial revolution, through different forms of leadership, even family leadership. And what I see in the last sort of five to 10 years among some of the best leaders is they've got very good at the craft, but still it can be very ego driven. And I can use myself as an example here. Um, recently, I was working with a colleague and I felt the need to help her and something happened in our team and I felt the need to help her. And so I did. And there was a narrative that I could give that was very positive on the outside. I'm helping. I'm being caring. I'm being kind. But actually, I was driven by my own needs, my own ego, because it was almost a militant sense of care that I was giving. I, I need to help you. You need help. You need my assistance here. And as I reflected on this incident afterwards, and by the way, Deb, it didn't go well, that conversation. And I was thinking I was a bit brittle there. I wasn't driven by love. I wasn't driven by care for the other person. It was more about me than the other person. And so the effect was a bit negative. And if we bring this into the AI sphere and the technological sphere more broadly, you think about software developers who are working on things. You think about leaders who are guiding project leaders or organizational leaders who are guiding the development of a project or more broadly a strategy, what are they driven by? Is it a desire to accomplish the number one spot, a desire to make more money? Or is it a broader desire to serve others? Um, and in fact, I would say that the term love is actually thrown about quite a lot in discussions of AI. Um, you look at um, Stuart Russell's work on beneficial AI, you look at what I think is an excellent book by Kai-Fu Lee on AI. Um, there are other books, actually, a lot of them do end up towards the topic of love, or even many of them naming the topic of love as, in some ways, the pinnacle of the whole discussion. And in my book, The Threshold, it's exactly where I end up as well. I think it's central. So in the introduction of the book, and maybe there's a connection here uh, between what you write in the introduction of the book and, and what you were just talking about, what you write, and, and I'll quote you here, is whereas technologists start with the question, what can we automate? And ethicists start with the question, should we automate this? You start with the leadership question, how can leaders promote flourishing as technology advances? When I read that and I hear you talk, I can see the connection you are making between service and uh the promotion of flourishing. I wonder if you could expand on this a little bit. What is the role of leadership in the development of AI and what can good leadership potentially do? Or what could bad leadership potentially do? Well, let me start with what leadership can potentially do. My view is that whatever industry you're in, whatever geography, whatever stage of development your organization is in, leadership is everything. And I was having a conversation with a leader of a global company and um, they were working a lot on AI and I asked them what levers are you pulling to use AI in the best possible way and the response I got was uh, technology lots of technology levers they were pulling understandably and then the second set of levers that they were pulling were collaboration levers they were not just working within their own company but they were working in the ecosystem 
in the industry more broadly. So the technology lever and the collaboration lever, they weren't pulling the leadership lever. And this was what they realized was a big gap in um, their performance at the moment. Now, in terms of what good leadership can potentially do, leadership effectiveness and business performance are strongly linked. Now, the leadership circle did a study of over 2,000 businesses, and they found a strong correlation between leadership effectiveness, as they defined it, and business performance. So, for example, you could see that in the top percentiles of businesses, that um, the highest performing ones had the highest leadership effectiveness, and similarly for the lowest percentiles and the lowest leadership effectiveness. So great leaders flip the odds of success. And I think that works uh, for AI as well. And you asked, what does what can bad leadership potentially do? I, I like flipping the question that way because leadership, it's not just about the hard numbers. It's also foundational at the level of mindset because bad leadership can be a destructive force. From the Medici bank scandal of the 15th century, right through Enron in 2001 or Bernie Madoff in 2008, or we could talk about some very recent scandals about which I've been watching on Netflix. One thing unites them all, mindset. Impoverished leadership mindset, greed, over-extravagant lifestyle, theft, and more. Not a mindset of servant-heartedness, care for others, and dare I say it, love. So in the area of AI, I think good leadership, I mean, the, the beneficial use cases are tremendous. I mean, I saw recently this AI that was helping uh, doctors spot Alzheimer's from cookie drawings, and so many tricky problems have been solved by AI. There was the one that was uh, released, I think it was within the last 12 months of um, uh, predicting the structure of more than 20,000 human proteins. And, and these problems had eluded human experts. So the, the possibilities are very positive for AI well-led. There's a, a question that I want to ask now about the relationship between leadership on the one hand as the kind of governing ethic around an organization and the way that leadership infuses an entire organizational structure. I'm really interested in, in organizational structures writ large, and I, I'm particularly interested in the way that organizational structures and ethical outcomes are entangled with one another when it comes to technological production broadly. How do organizational structures impact the development of technological products, and in particular, AI as a technological pro product? How do organizational features impact the ethical outcomes of tech products, and what does this have to do with the leadership at the helm of a technological organization? Yeah, I'm really intrigued by this question and in, in terms of the link of organizational structure and also organizational features and AI. And I'm curious, Deb, I mean, what are your thoughts on this question? You said you'd, you're working on this a lot. I'm, I'm curious what's behind that. Yeah, sure. I mean, the, the larger question comes out of some of the work that I've been doing, uh, looking at an entire life cycle of development of a product. And one of the things that I'm finding is that the entire life cycle of the product typically involves a large number of people something that you talk about as well, from product developers to people who are engineering to people who are thinking about the design. And the more siloed each of these areas are, the less likely they are to be able to think in terms of the big picture outcomes. And the, I think, stronger the ethical leadership at the helm of this, the more likely people are to look at that as a kind of deliverable or as a kind of a objective that they consider in the general production of a technological product. And I think that, you know, one of the things that I've in particular been thinking about that follows from the question that I just asked you um, is the role of leadership and technological outcomes and the relationship between that leadership and the intention uh, behind that leadership and the, the kind of current uh, work economy um, in which we have increasingly more workers who are either siloed or who are even gig workers or outsourced in places like India or the Philippines or Costa Rica, completely untethered from the life cycle of the development of a product. Um, I have a friend, and this is just anecdotal, uh, who's at work developing an app that, as he envisions it, would be a kind of task rabbit for engineers and coders who would individually take on from outside of the company's threshold a complete assignment for the company who wouldn't want to potentially hire a full-time engineer. And I sort of 
cringe when I hear of these developments because I take from your work and my own work uh, how important it is that the company's organizational structure, its understanding of itself as a cohesive whole and as its product as the outcome of a cohesive whole, how important it is for that to lead to a kind of cohesively understood product as an output and how ethical and potentially unethical or harmful outcomes are tethered to these kinds of silos. So I'm wondering from your perspective, how leadership can create that kind of cohesive home and what the challenges are in our current you know, gig economy or gig worker economy or maybe fragmented uh, corporate culture to that kind of leadership. Yeah, that's really interesting to hear. Um, silos, I think, are very important indeed and getting beyond those silos and, and critical to that is having a culture of openness and also cherishing feedback and You've mentioned ethics there, and I'm not an ethicist, but one of the questions that ethicists ask is, should we do this? And at a leadership level, there's this question of, should we, or, or how much should we admit our mistakes? And inevitably, with something like AI, it's very iterative, and it's not that everything goes perfect in the development and release of new technologies here. So to what extent should we admit our mistakes and share those with others? And recent studies have shown that leaders who do that lead to better performing organizations. So that's one thing is this culture of openness. And the other one is cherishing feedback, because if someone spots something that is ethically questionable or may affect a group of workers negatively in terms of their working conditions, then they should be able to provide that feedback. And it should be, in my opinion, genuinely seen as a gift. And at the level of the statement I just made, almost every leader I've met would agree with it. But the rubber hits the road when the feedback conversation actually happens. And actually, we're back to love and care here, because when I have a feedback conversation with you, do I genuinely assume that you are an intelligent, creative person worthy of good outcomes? Or, and I confess I've been guilty of this in the past, do I view the person I'm giving feedback as just someone I just need to show you where you went wrong and just get with my program? And, you know, I can feel I'm worked up about it. Those are two very different starting points from which to deliver feedback. I think one area where it's very relevant to AI development is the, the command and control culture that you find in many organizations versus a more agile culture that you find in other organizations. And I mention this because of your question about structure. Um, I find working with leadership teams that the shift from one to another is often a very difficult shift to make. And there are sometimes leadership teams of large organizations that are in effect command and control. Maybe it's just the CEO who has all the command authority. Maybe it's just the leadership team as a whole, but it's a very small group relative to the size of the overall company. And they have this structure and culture of command and control, but what they're saying in their vision and a cultural change they want to deliver is they want to move to a more agile way of working because they realize that we, we need to be much more um, inviting of ideas that come from many different places in the organization. But nothing has really changed in terms of the role modeling or the incentives. Um, so that shift is a, a critical one. I think the final point I'll make, make, as you referred to the gig economy, is that I think it's worrying in some quarters that the word disruption has been seen as an unquestionably positive narrative. Now, disruption can be a great thing if we disrupt. And, and the, the phrase with disruption that I'm thinking about here is you often hear from startups, we're going to disrupt the telecoms industry. We're going to disrupt this industry. It's all about disruption and how you access funding in that way. And it's seen as a positive narrative. On the one hand, it is in terms of progress and uh, more efficient ways of doing things. On the other hand, I think more attention needs to be given to those who are on the losing end of the disruption. There are jobs being destroyed and how is it for them? So I think more attention needs to be given by regulators uh, and also investors uh, to that dynamic. It's interesting because when I hear the term disruption, I think about it less in its relationship to a technologically progressive narrative 
Um, and more in terms of economic disruption. I mean, when we're talking about disruption and the incentives behind developing products toward the ends of disruption, investors get really excited by this term because it means an economic intervention that would potentially be financially beneficial to them or would disrupt the market in ways that can uh, deliver great returns and create a fair amount of profit. Uh, I'm wondering whether you see some of the financial incentives and the financial incentive structures around technological production, in particular AI as a technological product, as orthogonal to some of the ways that you're thinking about leadership. And if so, how can those two potentially oppositional dimensions, on the one hand, good leadership that is more cautious, maybe that moves a little bit slower, um, be aligned with a financial incentive structure that that wants to make profit and that sees disruption and moving quickly as a way to generate profit, which is, after all, the aims of investment, which drives our culture of technological production. To paraphrase, the question really winnowed into a question about how we can align these two seemingly oppositional incentives. On the one hand, disruption, which seeks to create financial profit. And on the other hand, the kind of leadership that you're talking about, which might challenge that kind of disruptive mode or might not be compatible with that kind of disruptive mode and therefore may compromise some of the profit incentive structures around technological production. Is there a way to align these two things? Thank you. I think that's a tremendous question because what you are describing is a polarity. Uh, there are these two incentives and uh, how can you have both or how can we align them? And often with a polarity, uh, we can get caught in this battle between one or the other. It's either a loving approach or it's a financially fruitful approach. And the invitation that I make to leaders, and when I talk about take a pathway to the threshold, cross the threshold, this is an invitation to a space that is more open to combining different points of view, finding the harmonization. So it's less about an alignment, but more, what if we could have both? And this is where I think it gets very exciting. For example, Leaders, in my experience, leaders who cultivate stillness, who slow down, who realize that less is more, find that they can have a culture which is inspiring and motivational and engaging and that results go well. Um, it is a real challenge for leaders where um, the next quarterly results are exactly uh, what needs to happen. But also if you look at the history of successful CEOs, many of them are long serving and are taking a long lens view. And less successful CEOs can't understand that. They're like, how do you do that? Because you've got the next quarter of results coming up. Surely you need to focus on those. What if you miss those results? But we know the real deal when we see it. We can sense it. And those leaders who have the long lens, as well as they are still focused on the present, you know, there is a way of rising above. And it can sound in some way ethereal or spiritual, but actually this is about maturing consciousness. This is about being comfortable with complexity. Uh, it's about cultivating a deep trust in the intelligence of other people, for example, the people on my team, so that I really do let go. Um, so I have a strong belief, but also having worked with many leaders across many industries, not all of them great at their jobs, um, I can see it happen. I can see the ones who are uh, doing this harmonization. I want to just take a second because you introduced a term that's a key term for your book. In the book, you propose the term threshold leadership. Can you define what you mean in that term? Why do you see threshold leadership as a critical form of leadership in the context of AI specifically? Yes, threshold leadership is uh, absolutely central to uh, what we need in the age of AI. I think more than any other leadership approach, this prepares leaders better. And I came up with this metaphor of threshold as applied to leadership because leaders today, whether they like it or not, leaders are on the edge of something emergent. We look at AI, by definition, it's something emergent. So threshold leadership is where leaders become hyper aware of connections and contradictions that are around. Maybe a contradiction between financial flourishing and showing love in, in business. 
um, these leaders, the, the threshold, they become really appreciative of the richness of different systems and the, the complexity that is around them. They're not so lost in reflection that they're powerless to act, but actually they've got this deep freedom to act. And threshold leadership, as I define it, consists of four pathways. I think leaders who are at the threshold, functioning well, they cultivate stillness, they think independently, they embody intelligence, and they mature their own consciousness. So they're journeying to the threshold themselves and they are inviting others to the threshold. And through the research I've done in my career, I mean, these are the four pathways I've found most help leaders enhance their own thinking, their own being. Can you give us an example of a threshold leader in the public sphere, just so listeners have some traction on what this might actually look like? Is Elon Musk a threshold leader? Is Jack Dorsey a threshold leader? Is Mark Zuckerberg a threshold leader? Is there somebody else you have in mind who embodies the qualities that you just laid out, who might give us some direction about what this looks like in, in practice? One of the most effective threshold leaders that I have seen is Pascal Sorio, who is the CEO of AstraZeneca. And the reason why I view him as an effective threshold leader is because the leadership response to the COVID-19 pandemic at AstraZeneca was one of the most effective in the world. Now, that is a controversial statement among some, but I view this as a threshold response because there was a deep stillness and a care for others at the heart of their COVID-19 response. They could have offered their vaccines at a higher price, but they offered a lot of their vaccines at cost price. And you know, some cynics would say, oh, they just did this in order to get a foothold in the lucrative vaccine market for the longer term. And you know, maybe the, the cynics have a point there, but it still doesn't change the fact that in the shorter term, they took a profit-destroying path. And what I'm curious about is what created the conditions for AstraZeneca to take such a beneficial action. And they had actually built into their business the, uh, a campaign of, of listening and thinking well for at least two years before the pandemic came on us. And they did roadshows, they did other events where they had people across their business pausing, considering, really listening to each other. They developed a culture where stillness fueled their decision-making. And this was led by Sorio himself. And when the pandemic came on, it's, it's often when a crisis strikes, the work you have done, the deep self-work you have done in the months and years before, then the benefit is shown. And Sorio immediately prioritised global health above price maximization. And you know, prioritizing anything above price or value maximization is hard for major corporations. We've already discussed this earlier in our conversation. AstraZeneca was struggling years before when Sorio took over. So market capitalization has been part of their story. It rose, uh, became the largest company in the UK FTSE uh, financial index. But, you know, I think the sort of personal drive and leadership that was shown there in such a difficult situation really stands out to me. I just want to pause for a second because I I can hear my listeners coming from industry and you know the CEOs who listen to the show chuckling or maybe even groaning at some of the terms that you just use like uh oh, stillness uh oh, love these are people who are interested in spreadsheets and are interested in the bottom line and who have to answer to a board and and to uh, shareholders sometimes as well. Can you give us a sense of what stillness looks like in a business context, like how it infuses a kind of corporate culture, uh, what it looks like in practice and in business terms? Yes. Wonderful question. Um, let me give you a few examples. So sure, stillness could look like at a corporate retreat, you go away for some days and some companies do this and find tremendous value in it and then arriving at a, a, a shared sense of purpose that it really meaningful for them. So that could be what stillness looks like. So go away and have the mountaintop experience. But let me give you a few different examples. Um, I once worked with some call center workers and we were talking exactly about this question around stillness. And they said, look, we work eight hours per day. We have our time shifts. We do have 40 minutes for lunch, 
but we're not allowed to get up from our desks in between. We don't have time to take any kind of stillness break. And I said to them, really? And then one of their colleagues said, well, we are allowed to go to the restroom. And then another one said, uh, yeah, and also we are allowed, we can put the call on pause and we can go and get a glass of water from the water cooler, even during that, you know, as a small break. So then we all started to have a conversation about what rituals could they put in place that are stillness, that take 10 seconds. So you get up from your desk, you're walking to the water cooler and you just have a moment and you breathe and get the water and then come back. And what they reported was that when they did this, their concentration was higher. Their level of empathy with people who were calling was higher. So they suddenly found that they were doing their jobs better, even from this brief moment of stillness. I'll give you another example. Uh, I had a load of tasks to get done one morning, including a lot of spreadsheet work. And I remember once just trying to crack through it, hours and hours and hours. And then there was another day where in the middle, I just took a five minute break and I went for a walk outside and I didn't have any music on and I walked slowly and then I walked back to my desk and I carried on and my work was just that much more effective. So for those who groan about stillness, what I think immediately is, wow, if you if you don't want to build some stillness into your day, why would you be that ineffective? Why would you be that unproductive? I know that I work at 200% of my effectiveness when I've had decent breaks. So surely I'd work at 200% for 95% of the time than 50% for 100% of the time. You know, that's it's sort of, I have a maths background. So sort of do that maths. And I think, yeah, I know which I'd rather do. I'm going to take a few breaks. Right. And I hear this and I think about, you know, the kind of bizarreness of hearing that somebody's stillness break is in the five minutes they get to go get a glass of water. I mean, that's an insane corporate culture to me that speaks of very poor leadership. In in my uh, career as an academic, I am certainly burned out almost all the time. I'm not burned out though because I'm inefficient in my work. I'm not burned out because I have five minute breaks in between the three classes I teach on Wednesday that go from noon to 6 p.m. with five minute breaks in between those each of those three classes because I didn't get enough of sleep. I'm burned out because it's simply just too much work. Uh, it's simply tasking one worker with too much to do in a day. And I find that kind of corporate culture that says, you know, just find your own little uh, health havens and stillness breaks that you can have while you're walking to the water cooler, which you get to do twice a day, uh, so deeply insidious because they seem to suggest that the culture that we have is just fine and that workers can task themselves with excusing themselves from the immense amount of work that they do where they're all on call, not just from nine to five anymore, but really from nine to infinity because their phones are constantly going off and they have constant access to emails and bosses can email them and ask them to do more tasks at whatever time of the day that they want. Um, so deeply insidious. Can we really call for stillness without calling for massive leadership changes and structures to the way that we're being asked to work and the amount of labor that we're being uh, tasked with doing without really in our age of AI and socio-technical systems and and asynchronous uh, email messaging, um, not just again in the nine to five workday, but really all the time. I think we can. I do like the thrust of your question because I think leaders bear disproportionate responsibility here. So are they properly resourcing their organizations with redundancy? And I mean redundancy in the positive sense of the word, not letting people go and making people redundant so that they lose their jobs. That's not what I'm meaning by the word. There's another sense of the word redundancy, which is where if you've got a set of tasks to do and a certain number of people to do those tasks, you build in some extra people resource so that I mean, someone goes off sick or there's a job transition, etc. You still have enough time in the system to get what you need to do done or if, if a surprise or emergency comes up. So the responsibility is on the leaders to to properly resource their organizations, to role model stillness. And I love what you say about the, the five-minute break as well. I mean, that, that was an example of where their reality was very, very little space for breaks. And we were trying to help them at least take a first step. And this is where I move on to the other part of your question, where I say, I think it is 
possible for employees and gig workers to do something about it. It can be very difficult if you're in a situation where there are really no good jobs to go to. And if the leadership structure and the boss is one who does micromanage and does not create that space, then I absolutely get this can be very difficult. But there are a lot of other companies where um, the micromanaging isn't happening so much. There is that space and the employee has the freedom to do what I did a couple of years ago, which is turn off all the notifications on my phone. Now, it was actually an incredibly difficult exercise. I have an iPhone and it took me over an hour to pick my way through the settings and the subsettings and then go in the individual apps and then the settings there. And it really took quite a while before I succeeded in my task. But boy, was it a joy when I succeeded uh, because now I don't have anything pinging at me. And if I want to go on WhatsApp, I go on WhatsApp. And when I'm working, I'll often be on it quite a lot. But um, so there are choices that people could make or if they're not being micromanaged and if they are being managed more about outcomes, uh, then they could choose to build in, um, as I sometimes do, I'll build in some sport in the middle of the day. I quite like working very early, so I make an early start and I quite like going for a run in the middle of the day. I live in England. It's winter. Middle of the days. There's just the best light, the best weather. Um, so. There are some choices at the edges that we all have, and it's about seeing what are the choices that I have. The final thing that I think some employees or gig workers can do is um, just think about what area can I be courageous in? It might be the courageous conversation with a colleague or a boss to say, look, I don't appreciate that, or I'd like this boundary, please. Um, so yeah, it's a difficult area, um, but we should also not completely absolve ourselves as workers of responsibility. I mean, this is a really interesting leadership area question for me because it really uh, does have to, you know, interrogate the role of leaders and the power of leaders versus the power and the role of workers. I remember very early on in the pandemic, uh, getting an email from my at the time boss uh, saying, do you feel overworked? Do you feel burned out? Here are all of these serenity tips that you can do in order to ameliorate some of your burnout. And I was grateful for the email. I think it was intended in, in a very thoughtful way. But I also thought the reason that I'm burned out is because you're tasking me with a workload that is just unmanageable. And, you know, the, the leadership had passed down certain overwhelming numbers of tasks with too few workers to complete the amount of work and timelines that were also just unreasonable. So to me, it felt almost... Again, it was intended very well, but it felt almost insulting um, to get an email saying, here are all of the ways that you can mend yourself from all of the uh, harms that leadership is imposing on you. And so to me, the answer to these questions really actually does have to do with your general topic and expertise, which is shifts on the fundamental level in the leadership of an organizational structure, because workers don't have, the, at least in my view, the kind of mobility or ability to respond to that kind of set, set of tasks or orders, whereas I think leaders have the ability to cultivate an environment that allows their workers the freedom and the manageability um, over the tasks that they are imposing and, and their day. So to me, this, this seems like a threshold uh, leadership responsibility. And until there is a wide uh, acceptance of that kind of leadership and a acceptance of uh, the fact that workers have a right to their own space and their time and reasonable workloads and reasonable uh, labor sets, these kinds of ameliorative um, seem to be somewhat I, I want to say temporary fixes or maybe even temporary fixes that allow un helpful and maybe harmful leadership to subsist without the rest of the organization kind of crumbling in an unfixable way. Well said. And I think an example of threshold leadership is maturing consciousness, which means both thinking about the benefit that the business could bring to society generally. So that's a sort of outward mission of the business, but also the benefit that can be brought to the employees and other workers within the company. 
And sometimes I think of this as the logic and feeling dynamic. The, the most effective leaders are, are good on both task and emotion. And so they can hold this sort of mission and purpose that the business is driving towards and also create a culture within their firm that is restorative, that is inspiring to employees. And I must admit, a red flag always goes up for me when I see either a business that has a deeply inspiring purpose and vision, but people are getting burned out within the business, or a beautifully fluffy, warm culture, but performance is tanking. And I have to believe, I don't actually like that phrase, I do believe that it is possible to have both. And that's, I think, what you're getting at, and it's certainly what I'm getting at with the threshold. Uh, I want to talk about a different dimension of leadership, which is leadership and responsibility. Um, we're living in a time when we have leaders who have driven uh, cultures that end up harming quite a, a large number of people. And because of our corporate structures, in particular in the United States, those leaders oftentimes don't face any consequences for the harm that they cause. For one example that comes immediately to mind to me, uh, fairly recently in the news was the news that the uh, leadership at Boeing had made a number of executive decisions and a number of hires that had directed decisions to be made in a kind of financial pursuit um, that oftentimes came at the consequence of good engineering for their planes. And in the context of Boeing, a number of those planes dropped out of the sky. Hundreds of people were killed as a result of leadership that was primarily driven to look for profit and was hiring people who had a kind of financial background, but oftentimes not an engineering background, who in turn drove financial incentives and made decisions on a financial level rather than a level, for example, of safety or coherent engineering. I wanted to talk about this infrastructure that we have in the United States because there seems to be an inability in our legal structures, our political structures, and maybe even in the way that we conceive of responsibility broadly speaking, in the United States in particular, as people who are perpetrators, uh, people who do wrong, um, people who can actively be seen to cause harm in a cause and effect arc, end up getting punished, but has a more difficult time grasping at multiple levels of remove between on the one hand, the harm caused, and on the other hand, the kind of responsibility that the grand architects of that maybe set of processes, the leadership has to do ultimately with the harm. And so one question that you raise about leadership is the challenge that AI in particular poses when it goes wrong or causes harm, which is to say that from the development to deployment of AI, there are so many different people working on it that it's hard to identify who is responsible when things go wrong or cause harm. Add to that the fact that AI is just an algorithm, right, as some call it, so that when it causes a problem, it's really sometimes impossible to uh, hold people responsible the way that we would hold an individual responsible. So for example, if a person knowingly printed misinformation about me, we'd hold that person responsible for libel. We, we could sue that person. We could demonstrate that person's responsibility for the harm caused. If a newspaper knowingly misprinted information or uh, misprinted libel about me, even if we couldn't sue an individual writer, we could sue the publisher. We could hold the publisher of that information responsible. But with an algorithm, as you write, and I'm going to quote you here again, maybe we can't hold the leader responsible because they might not know enough about what's going on under the hood of the algorithm to be held responsible for that algorithm. Maybe we should hold the developer responsible, but the developers oftentimes lack a broad context for how their work is being used, especially if the developer is a contractor. So here's my question. Do we need to rethink what we mean by responsibility in an age of AI? And how would you go about advising or thinking about responsibility or assigning responsibility or even potentially legally framing the consequences of responsibility when it comes to AI? Yes, this is a question that has many interwoven disciplines of ethics, law, politics, certainly business is relevant. And I mean, I'm not a lawyer. I'm not a politician. I'm not an ethicist. Um, I say I'm not a lawyer. I mean, strictly speaking, my doctorate involved significant amounts of legal analysis, but that was from the middle Islamic period over 600 years ago. Um, so I'm not a lawyer in any sense that I would determine as being particularly useful today to some of these ethical and legal discussions about responsibility. Um, I think you phrase it well in the question in terms of the complexity that there is, because I've found that there is rarely 
an individual in an organization who who thinks, oh my, I should not have done this. And so the ownership of error is is rare. Also, of course, it's easy. I mean, you bring up the Boeing example, and there are so many other examples that have been in the news about, for example, Facebook and uh, their algorithms leading to content that teenage children would see online and the alleged mental harm that would be done to them as a result. Um, And we can try to throw software developers or leaders under the bus here. But of course, many of us use products that we might be critiquing, you know, fly on those planes with those companies. Um, Many of us are shareholders in the large companies that we're talking about via our pensions or other investments. The, The kind of advice I would give about thinking about responsibility is twofold. Um, and, and before I say that the two things, it's the, the context is that it is such a, a complex question that we need to get people from the different disciplines in the room. So that's the, the first thing that I would advise is to make sure that we have the right es- experts in the room. And secondly, that the framing for the conversation is one where each person is genuinely interested in what the other will say next. And this relates to my independent thinking pathway that I talk about. I've been an observer in a conversation once. The conversation was about the topic of abortion. And it's a very difficult topic for people to talk about. And this observation that I did had two people debating with each other. Each person was was taking a different point of view. So one was pro-life, one was pro-choice, so-called. And they genuinely held those points of view. I was not facilitating the conversation. Someone that I know was facilitating it, and she facilitated it magnificently in a way that both of these individuals were actually able to listen to each other and pay magnificent attention to each other. I mean, what a what an experience in such a topic. Now, with difficult topics of AI and mental harm, and you give the Boeing Boeing example, for any discussion around assigning responsibility and changes to the legal system, we would need to get people in the room who genuinely represent different interests. So senior executives and people who are deeply responsible for gig workers, uh, politicians of different stripes. And that feels to me quite a difficult thing to achieve, actually, in today's world, is to get that quality of listening with that group of people in the room. I once asked a politician in the UK this question and said, you know, what would it take to get politicians of different parties really, really listening to each other on some of these topics? She responded to me by saying two things. Number one, do not try to have that conversation before an election because nobody will tell you what they really think. And number two, make sure the conversation is in private. So I think you can see there the the vibe that this is a very hard set of topics to move forward. When you talk about leadership, you talk about the importance of defining a company's relationship to purpose uh, and from the get-go. This is something that I oftentimes talk about when I talk about the ethics of a technological sphere of production. I say that, and I say this in particular when I'm talking to CEOs who ask me questions about how they can make their company more ethical or how they can make their product more ethical. I say um, it has to be intentional. To go back to where you're starting with, with the idea of love, one philosophical premise of love is that it is directed toward the object, that it has to have aim, it has to have intention. This is something that's at least as old as Aristotle in the Western tradition, that there is an intention and there is an object direction to uh, this particular uh, ethic or emotion. And so when I talk to CEOs, I don't use the term love, but I say that you cannot patch on ethics like a prosthetic after you have developed a product, that it really has to be built at the foundations. It has to be there from the get-go. So I think this connects to what you talk about when you talk about leadership having a purpose-driven ethic as, in particular, very important. But I wanted to ask you why you thought that purpose was important. What does determining the purpose change or provide on the ethical level in terms of the product or the output? Purpose is vital for getting things done. I think if you get out of bed in the morning without purpose, then there's a a lack of an animating force. Often 
we hear a lot of talk about the importance of physical energy, mental energy, emotional energy. So we hear a lot of talk around, yeah, we need to manage our energy, you know, make sure that physically, mentally, emotionally we're on song. That's really only talking about the how. For me, the purpose adds the why. So physical, mental, and emotional is very important. But then if we move to ethics, this question of you know, should we do this, then the purpose question for organizations is what do you want your organization to achieve and why? And that is the starting point. Um, several research studies show that purpose-driven organizations improve performance and satisfaction. Uh, and if we turn to AI on this question of purpose, I regularly have AI leaders saying that purpose matters. I've heard even just in the last two or three years, leaders of AI companies ask questions like, are we a product company or a purpose company? And saying that we need to be the latter if we're going to address the most critical issues. And I think that's, that's where we get to the heart of it is uh, that being focused on purpose helps you engage with what matters most. And I think we can all think of times in our lives when we undertook activity, we were busy, we were doing work, but was it in the right direction? So I think purpose is, is really key. And I just want to end my response to your question by talking a little bit about intention, because that really is at the heart of purpose. And what I see in discussions of AI is often a very unhelpful blurring. Sometimes we hear people saying, yeah, you know, that machine has purpose or that AI sets its own purpose. Whereas when that phrase is used, it's often used quite loosely. What people really mean is it's a mechanical purpose. Someone gave it an intention. There was an overarching goal given by a human being. So right now, AI is far from being able to set its own purpose in the sense of intentional purpose. Even given chat GPT, it's far from being able to do that at the moment. You have a chapter on the importance of human independent thinking and why it matters to AI as AI develops and improves. Can you talk about uh, the importance of human independent thinking? Can you talk about it in, in particular, uh, the fact that human beings create AI, they direct AI, they develop AI importantly with a purpose? How do you think about human independent thinking? And the other part of the question is that there's a fear among many of us humanists that AI can actually interrupt human independent thinking, that it may actually be limiting or suppressing human independent thinking. I wonder if you could just frame some of these questions that come up around how you're viewing AI and the importance of maintaining human independent thinking in the context of AI production and development. Yeah, this is one of the most important questions. And there are very powerful interruptive forces in our society. And I love the quote from Hillary Clinton. Uh, she wrote in her book, What Happened, where she sh shares this story of a meeting that Arianna Huffington was in. And she was in a meeting of the Uber board of directors a few years ago. And Huffington was making a point about how important it was to increase the number of women on the board. And there was a man who talked over her who did so to say that increasing women on the board would only mean more talking. And Clinton wrote, you can't make this up. You know, so this interrupt was sort of limiting the thinking of Huffington by saying that there's too much talking going on. Interruption really costs because it, it cuts over somebody's thinking and we lose the value of what they were going to say next. And in an AI context, there are particular interruptive forces. So one of them is homogeneity. Homogeneity, so everything being homogenous or the same. And that's a myth because in our world, it's not the case that, for example, all human beings are the same. We are diverse. And if we cherish that diversity, we add quality to our thinking. But homogeneity is an interruptive thinking disruptor because of bias. If we take an example or an AI example is that we've seen uh, many data sets and AIs that have uh, characterized women or blacks in sexist or racist ways. 
there was one data set I saw that where women were 33% more likely to appear in photographs related to cooking. And now the problem was that the machine learning system took that data set and then actually amplified the bias error because then when that, that data set with a 33% more likely in, when it then was put into a neural network that was trained on those same cooking images, then it predicted that the person cooking was 68% more likely to be a woman, not just 33% more likely, even when the image was that of a balding man in a kitchen. Now, this is a podcast, so the listeners can't see me, but you can see me, Deb, in this recording that we're doing, and you can see, you know, this resonates with me. I'm a bald man. I like cooking. So this example really resonates with me. But the homogeneity is an interruption. Uh, and another one is polarization, where people detach and disconnect and disengage from each other. And if I'm so entrenched in my own values that I'm not listening to you, maybe because I'm afraid at some level of ceasing to be fully, if I really listen to where you're going. And AI can fuel this polarization. We've already seen it in terms of some inputs to elections and how voting is happening uh, with various AI-fueled bots where the goal of some of the people behind this is to divide and conquer. Um, so I mean, we can look at other thinking disruptors as well, but um, these are all uh, insidious to human independent thinking. And I find independent thinking peerless and profound in a digital environment because I'm seeing so many forces coming in that are, as you say, interrupting us. The, the antidote to this is to pay magnificent attention. And the beauty is, as, as human beings, we all have this in us, the ability to pay attention to other people. We have this ability, whether we know it or not. It is a strong, creative force. Yeah. I mean, the three terms that come up to me, you mentioned one of them, independent thinking. The other is originality. And then the third is judgment, three things that AI does not have. And I am talking about this in the context of uh, having a conversation with you just a few months after the release of ChatGPT by OpenAI. Now, I've spent a lot of time as somebody whose bread and butter is writing and language, thinking about the shifts to our culture, the changes made by, by ChatGPT. And it seems to me that ChatGPT uh, embodies some of the uh, things that you are talking about insofar as it scans past texts and written work for uh, pre-existing thought. And then it combines that thought in potentially remediated original ways, but it actually can't create new thought. And in addition to that, it doesn't have the judgment to determine whether or not that thought is good thought or bad thought, or whether or not that thought is coherent or whether it's historically contextualized. So for example, if you ask ChatGPT to talk about, for example, Nazi characterizations of Jews, right? It will give you the Nazi characterization of Jews. It can't tell you what's wrong with that characterization or why that uh, characterization is a product of 1930s and 1940s thinking that we ought to disregard in 2020 or the harms of that kind of thinking. You haven't asked it those kinds of questions. So it's drawing from these pre-existing texts and it's operating the same or a very similar way to, for example, how predictive text works, meaning that it can anticipate and calculate what the next likely word know what the next likely sentence with the next likely uh, fact is going to be. And then it draws that and then it draws from that probability a, a, a anticipated next set of predictable facts or highly predictable or high, high uh, percentage of prediction facts or thoughts. But in our age, I think that it, the importance of original intellectual thinking is more important than than ever. And I think that what ChatGPT, to my mind, can't do, or what it at least can't do yet, is generate original thought, make interventions into existing thought. Now, I think that uh, in our age, I'm not so arrogant or uh, so pessimistic to, is to believe that we have thought all of the important thoughts that there are to think. I still think that there are important innovations, important new original ideas, um, new important theories that we uh, can come up with, new assessments of old data, new judgments about history, about ideas that we should be uh, rethinking, not just remediating, but actually challenging and judging and assessing and maybe even discarding in 
service of new ideas. What, in your view, does ChatGPT change? What does it challenge and what potential new directions in terms of individual or original thought might come out of this? I think that ChatGPT changes very little and it changes a lot. I mean, let me say before I go into that, that ChatGPT is not a general intelligence yet. Uh, it's, uh, we could define different types of artificial intelligence. Uh, narrow AI is uh, intelligence that takes data from one specific domain and applies it to optimizing one specific outcome. That's the definition by Kai-Fu Lee of narrow AI. And that's the domain we're in now. And that's what ChatGPT is doing, albeit one specific domain, but then applied into many different domains. But what it doesn't do yet is the general intelligence of um, accomplishing any cognitive task, at least as well as humans. And that's Max Tegmark's definition of general artificial intelligence. So... Um, it does show, I would say, to your point of originality, um, AI in general is showing originality because it's coming up with answers that we didn't come up with. Um, and I think it's not showing originality at the level of the intention and um, putting together some of the judgments. Um, and with what you said about judgment, some of these competitive and uh, generative uh, adversarial networks sort of GANs can show judgment between different options. What they're not able to do is show judgment at an ethical level and help us answer what should we do. In terms of what ChatGPT changes, I think in one sense it changes very little. There's been a big hoo-ha about ChatGPT. It is a tremendous tool, I think, in many ways. But AI is getting better and better. We knew that anyway. And there will be better AI tools released. There will be more arm waving in the air and some people responding with fear and some responding with, wow, what a great opportunity this is for a world. That will happen this year. That will happen next year. So in one sense, it, it told us little that we didn't know already. However, I mean, ChatGPT really has also been a game changer across many different professions. It has brought AI into the public debate, even more than it had been before. Um, if we take one field, which is journalism, you look at the Wall Street Journal, BuzzFeed, CNET have all come under fire recently for outsourcing entry-level journalism to chat GPT. Um, so, I mean, that shows the importance of leaders focusing not just on profits because they came under fire for that stuff. We're almost out of time, but I want to ask two last questions um, to get you on the record about these, these topics. After writing the book, are you optimistic about the direction our leaders are taking the development of AI? Overall, I'm an optimistic person, Deb, and I do see uh, reasons to be optimistic from what we've seen recently around the debate around ChatGPT. More leaders, in my view, are taking collaboration seriously. They're realizing that AI is a tool that could be tremendously powerful, even worryingly powerful in the wrong hands. So what are we really going to do about it? And so open source platforms are getting more attention, uh, ethical summits and conferences that could try to hammer out agreements at a meta level, are getting more attention. So I do see optimism there. I also continue to be impressed at the heart that AI leaders show for many of the initiatives that they're, they're putting out. And of course, uh, I do have a realism as well, which is as with any new technology, there really are risks. In general, I'm not on the side of fear. I think that we can find effective ways to collaborate, to take AI in a good development direction. Final question. I teach a graduate course at UC Berkeley in the ethics of data science, uh, alongside a course on the ethics of technology at Cal Poly. What advice do you have for the future leaders of the technology workforce? I would say to future leaders that you are not merely an observer of the future that is coming. You're a shaper of it. We have a human machine future that's upon us already. And we can be sure that the flourishing will not be about the technology, but about humans connecting their thinking with the whole of their being. And I love the quote by John Naisbitt who wrote that the most exciting breakthroughs of the 21st century will not occur because of technology, but because of an expanding concept of what it means 
to be human. And that can be a scary future to step into, um, but this moment does represent a tremendous opportunity for our planet. I think if uh, I wanted leaders to remember one thing, I would invite them to remember that the fact that machines are not made of flesh makes more of a difference than we realize. Our bodies tell us so much. The information we get from our bodies, from our emotions, from the sensation of what it is like to live life and experience joy. Um, we have so many sources of wisdom, and I will use a word as big as wisdom here, uh, that we can continue to contribute massively, even as AI gets significantly better than it is today. Thank you so much, Nick.